You are listening to a Monash Christian Union Bible Talk. We encourage you to share this with friends and family, but ask that you do not edit it without the permission of the owners. This Bible Talk is designed to supplement belonging to a local church with its teaching and community, not to replace it. We pray this talk helps you love Jesus and become more like him. And so I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. He asked me, Son of man, can these bones live? I said, Sovereign Lord, you alone know. Then he said to me, Prophesy to these bones and say to them, Dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Sovereign Lord says to these bones. I'll make breath into you and you'll come to life. I'll attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I'll put breath in you and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I was prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling sound, and the bones came together, bone to bone. I looked and the tendons and flesh appeared on them and skin covered them but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, Prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to it, This is what the sovereign Lord says. Come, breath breath from the four winds, and breathe into these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath entered them. They came to life and stood up on their feet, a vast army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the people of Israel. They say, our bones are dried up and our hope is gone. We are cut off. Therefore, prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. My people, I'm going to open up your graves and bring you up from them. I'll bring you back to the land of Israel. Then you, my people, will know that I am the Lord. When I open your graves and bring you up from them. I'll put my spirit in you, and you will live, and I will settle you in your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken, and I have done it, declares the Lord. Okay, good to be here with you again tonight. Um, Have it open in front of you, as always. And just one question I have for us straight up is, is that my drink bottle from last night? Does anyone know? So I lost it. I was looking around for it madly. Is that mine? Yeah, I'll just take it, I'll, unless anyone calls out. Um, the question tonight, what hope is the resurrection? What hope is the resurrection? This is the question I want to be thinking through as we look at Ezekiel 37. It's a great resurrection hope passage, a famous one. Uh, so a great passage to come to with this question. I love this quote. If you want to build a ship, if you want to build a ship, don't drum up the people to gather wood, divide the work and give orders. Instead, teach them to yearn for the vast and endless sea. Did you love that quote? I love it. If you want to build a ship, don't drum up the people to gather wood, divide the work and give orders. Instead, teach them to yearn for the vast and endless sea. If you want to live a Christian life and be energised in your Christian living and motivated, 
don't just tell people how to be godly. Teach them what they're being godly for. What's the point? Where's the purpose? Where we're heading? It's good to respond to the love shown to us in the cross. It's good to respond to the fact that God has forgiven us, so we are in response out of thankfulness to go out and tell others. It's good to respond to it, but where are we heading? What are we building? What are we working towards? When I was in primary school, I had uh, the joy, I suppose, uh, of having my father as my sixth grade teacher. Yeah, he was also the vice principal of the school, and he was old school. So back in the day, uh, my dad was the kind of guy who would give people with the cuts, the cane, an actual rod if they got out of line. And his theory was um, set firm, clear boundaries early on with an incoming bunch of students and come down hard on them if they transgress and they'll be yours for the rest of the year. You'll have no problems. That was his approach. I, I can tell you that he's actually a very kind, gracious man, actually. Um, and that was just his sort of school persona. But, but I lived a little bit in fear of my dad. And I remember in the first few weeks of school, uh, sorry, in grade, of grade six, um, uh, we were going to music lesson and then we were being escorted back to our class by dad who came and picked us up, uh, Mr. White rather, and took us back to the classroom and I don't know what got into me, but he'd, he'd very clearly told us to walk in an orderly line, you know, um, to, in, in pairs back to the classroom. And I was just inspired by the creativity of youth uh, to grab the rule that I somehow had on me and break ranks, run across the hallway, launch off a chair and try and tap the fluorescent globe with my ruler. I'm sort of thinking Michael Jordan, sort of, you know, glory <laughs> moment. And I flew through the air and it smacked on the fluorescent globe. It didn't bust it, but it came really close. And the next thing I hear, thinking how glorious that was, was, Stuart White! Just like that. <laughs> Stuart White! Go to the office! And I was terrified. <laughs> it gave me, it scared the life out of me. And so I went up to Dad's vice principal office and I sat outside in the chair of shame thinking, what am I going to do? What's my excuse? Anticipating getting the cane over my backside. And I felt like I was waiting there for ages. And finally Dad came and he didn't look at me, walked straight into his office after doing something for... Uh, you know, half a minute or so, he, he called me in and I went in and he said, don't worry, mate, I'm not angry. Just go back and tell them that I gave you a good telling off, make it sound bad. <laughs> and I was so relieved. I was so relieved, right? I had an inside man, so to speak, <laughs> working on my behalf. And I have to say that uh, for I think now, looking back on my Christian life, for the majority of my Christian life, that was my Christian hope. In this life, I'm in that chair of shame outside, waiting to be escorted into the office 
where I'll receive my punishment. But praise be to God, he sent his son to die for me. So I know on that day of reckoning, that great and awful day, he will say, don't worry, mate, I'm not angry. That was my Christian hope. That was the sum of it. And so I'm compelled by the love of Christ because he died for me to forgive my sins. And I'm compelled by the urgent need that other people have not yet been offered that grace and they need to receive that grace and to know that assurance that when they meet their maker, they'll receive a warm welcome and not a stern judgment. That was my Christian hope. But as I've understood more, been taught more, read more, through scripture I've begun to, I've begun to see that there's so much more to Christian hope than that. It's not just about what we're saved from, right, that constitutes our Christian hope. That's a big part of it. But it's what we're saved for, which is even more important in shaping our Christian and clarifying our Christian hope. And so that's why it's good to wrestle tonight with this resurrection hope that we've seen in Ezekiel 37 and to think about what it means for us in the positive. What is our resurrection hope when we stand with Jesus? Well, I want to start off by getting into um, Ezekiel uh, 37. And actually, the first thing to notice about Ezekiel 37 in the opening few verses, as we've had it read out, is that this is a hopeless situation. It's not a hopeful situation it's a hopeless situation and a situation in which God's people are hungry for hope, but they don't have any hope. And so that's my first point there up on the screen. In Ezekiel 37, you see God's people hungry, hankering for hope, where there seems to be none. The hand of the Lord was on me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley it was full of bones. He led me back and forth among them. And I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley. Bones that were very dry. And he asked me, get this question from God to Ezekiel, the prophet. Son of man, can these bones live? And how do you like his answer? I said, Sovereign Lord, you alone know. Good answer, I think. <laughs> I'm looking at that valley of dry bones and I'm thinking, they ain't coming back to life. <laughs> but he just asked me the question. I sense a trap or a trick or, I don't know, God, you know. They sure as heck look dead. And this is a picture that's coming from the Lord to Ezekiel the prophet who's speaking at a time in the history of God's people when things were really, really as bad as they could get. He's speaking when God's people who, having been put in the land, right, the promised land, living under God's rule, and his blessing in his place, 
After all that was established by God, it's all gone pear-shaped many centuries later. And because of their faithlessness, they've been dragged off to Babylon. And it's not all of Israel. This was the last bit left, like the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom had been conquered by Assyria. They're already gone. Now the southern kingdom, Judah, Jerusalem are holding out, but now Babylon's come and taken the dregs. So they're all gone. God's people are in captivity in Babylon, a nation that doesn't know the God of Israel, doesn't respect the God of Israel, has their own gods, and they're overpowering God's people. This is the opposite of being blessed by living under God's rule, right? And they are bitter and hurt and depressed and anxious and angry. And so you get that, that incredible Psalm 137 and it laments. It's a song from the experience of being in Babylon. And they say, you know, we're there and they're taunting us, those people in Babylon. They're taunting us. They're saying, why don't you sing one of those songs about Zion and how beautiful and great Zion is? And then at the end of the psalm, it's, it's got that really bitter couple of lines. Happy is the one they sing in Babylon, God's people in Babylon. Happy is the one who seizes your infants, Babylon, and dashes them against the rocks. Now you might think that's appalling that that's in the Bible. Happy is the one who seizes your infants, those of Babylon, and dashes them against the rocks. But what it's expressing is deep hurt and anger that Babylon has dared to come in and take God's people and drag them away from their home and their place such that they would delight in them being hurt and crushed and to feel some of the pain they're feeling, that would relieve their disappointment and their bitterness and their hopelessness. They are in an utterly hopeless situation. They're not just dead, they're dead dead. And in fact, the reason they're in such a hopeless situation is not because they're in Babylon. I mean, that's, that's bad enough, but the big problem they've got is the reason they went into Babylon. That's what makes them dead, dead. Uh, look here in uh, chapter 36, verses 16 to 21. Say what, what? Ezekiel, thank you very much. Yes, Ezekiel 36. It's helpful to be picked up. Ezekiel 36. Some of you can go to... Uh, some of you can go to Isaiah 36 if you want, just see what it says. Just pick some random book, see what... Anyway, so uh, Ezekiel 36, verse 16 says, Again the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, when the people of Israel were living in their own land, they defiled it by their conduct and their actions. Their conduct was like a woman's monthly uncleanness in my sight. What a graphic image. <laughs> but get what he's saying about his own... That's how he's describing his own people. 
can you imagine my kids coming to me and they've done something that I'm embarrassed by that's a shame me? And I said, get out of my sight. You are like a woman's monthly uncleanness. <laughs> Go to your room. So I poured out my wrath on them. I poured out my wrath on them because they had shed blood in the land and because they had defiled it with their idols. I dispersed them among the nations and they were scattered through the countries. I judged them according to their conduct and their actions. And wherever they went among the nations, they profaned my holy name for it was said of them, These are the Lord's people. And yet they had to leave his land? I had concern for my holy name, which the people of Israel profaned among the nations where they had gone. What makes them dead dead? What makes them utterly hopeless is that they are hopeless idolaters. They're born of Adam, of the flesh, born into sin, spiritually dull. They do silly things. Like, remember? I mean, I say this all the time in my sermons and and every time I still genuinely find it amusing. Remember at Mount Sinai? When Moses goes up on their behalf to receive instructions on how to worship this mighty God who's just rescued them for Egypt, they get concerned because he's gone so long, so they have this brainwave. Let's use all the gold that we planted for Egypt that God gave to us to make a golden calf And let's worship that. What could go wrong? What a brilliant idea. It's ridiculous, isn't it? It's absurd. But they do daft things because they are hopeless idolaters. But the thing is, so are we. The Bible says that's exactly how we are. That's what it means to be born into sin. To be spiritually blind, we drink the Kool-Aid of consumerism. We bow down to the dreams of our parents above all else. Not all of us, some of us. We slavishly pursue a coveted career. We elevate finding ourselves over being found in God. We follow our nose, our intuition, our gut instinct over the proven plan of God. We construct our own mini babels, our white picket fence, our beautiful life that we strive to create. And at the same time, we scoff and we mock the people at Babel, the actual Babel, and go, what a bunch of banana heads. While we do the same thing, in a smaller way. A 
they are hungry for hope because they're in a, a hopeless situation and so are we. Uh, and here's a story, an illustration that doesn't really fit that well, but I'm going to shoehorn this sucker in because I feel like we need an intensity break. So let's just see how we go. When I was at Bible college, and uh, I was reminded uh, to tell this story by the corn in the face incident that happened here at Summit. When I was at Bible college, I remember one time we're at the dining table and we're all sitting around and, and, uh, and telling jokes and stories, and someone said something really funny, and it was uh, midway through me sort of chomping on a bit of meat, and I laughed really hard, and then I felt this thump of, of meat on my, on my thigh, and so I tried to sort of, you know, um, hide it and sort of, uh, you know, surreptitiously just scoop it off my, my thigh and put it into my mouth and eat it. And then everyone else around the table howled with laughter. And what had actually happened is that the guy next to me <laughs> was laughing and the meat flew down out of his mouth and hit my thigh. And I thought it was mine, so I <laughs> full on. And this is really just an intensity break, but here we go trying to put it back into the talk, right? So I'm trying to leverage it back into the talk. Uh, that, was my, that was my cheese touch moment. That was, from that point on, I was labelled officially unclean. No one would sit next to me for a week. They'd always point at me and go, unclean, unclean, unclean. <laughs> and the point is, there was no coming back. There was no coming back. I was stuck as an unclean person. And get ready for this. I was in a hopeless situation. Yeah, I know. Sorry. Yeah, it doesn't work at all. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. I'm just trying to give you a break, Okay. But they're in this hopeless situation, like I was. No, not really. It's a trivialise it. They were in an actually seriously hopeless situation, actually, as we are before God, spiritually dead. But then it says that God brings hope to this hopeless situation. God brings hope to this hopeless situation. You know the story. It's fantastic, isn't it? Look there what it says. Then he said to me, Prophesy to these bones and say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you and you will come to life and then you will know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I was prophesying, there was a noise. These bleached white bones. I imagine a dry desert scene with a bright blue sky and the sun beating down, and these scattered, far apart, scattered, bleached from the heat, bones. It says... There was a noise, a rattling sound, 
And the bones came together, bone to bone. I looked, and tendons and flesh appeared on them, and skin covered them. But there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to it, this is what the sovereign Lord says, come breath from the four winds and breathe into these slain that they may live. So I prophesy as he commanded me and breath entered them. They came to life and stood up on their feet, a vast army. What a journey from bleached white scattered bones to a vast army. Complete reversal, complete turnaround. Now they were dead, dead, utterly hopeless, and now they're contending for God. His representatives, his army, judging the nations who stand opposed to God and bringing his rule to the whole world. And the way it's described here, it's, it's, it's a recreation event. The words form them. The breath gives them, the spirit, the breath gives them life. That's what we see in Genesis, right? By his word, he created us. And as his image bearers, he breathed life into us. It's a recreation event. It's a resurrection event that can bring God's people back. But of course, this is all metaphorical, right? This is metaphorical. This is talking about a hopeless nation stuck in Babylon. How will they ever come back when they're hopeless idolaters? And he is saying metaphorically here through this vision that I am going to do it. I am going to bring my people back to the land. And it's really clear that it's metaphorical because it says there in verse uh, 11 that he said to me, he said, man, these bones are the people of Israel. They say our bones are dried up and our hope is gone. We are cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says, my people, I'm going to open your graves and bring you up from them. I will bring you back to the land of Israel. Resurrection is coming back to the land of Israel and being reinstated as God's people, and the great vision and hope for Jerusalem coming to fruition, and God's glory spreading out all over the earth through his people in Jerusalem. That's what resurrection stands for here, God's people coming back. So what on earth does this have to do with us? Well, it gets a bit more interesting, because as Ezekiel here in his prophecy describes what it will look like for real, literally, for them to come back. The description seems otherworldly. The description of what it means for God's people to actually come back looks like a nation we've never seen the like of before. Listen to what it says when it describes what it will mean for them to come back. In verse 24 of Ezekiel 37, it says, My servant David will be king over them. Now David's long dead. My servant David will be king over them, and they will all have one shepherd. They will follow my laws and be careful to keep my decrees. What? They've never done that, but they're going to do it now. They will live in the land I gave my servant Jacob, the land where your ancestors live, they and their children and their children's children will live there forever. And David, my servant, will be their prince forever. 
I will make a covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant. I will establish them and increase their numbers and I will put my sanctuary among them forever. My dwelling place will be with them. I will be their God and they will be my people. Then the nations will know that I, the Lord, make Israel holy when my sanctuary is among them forever. This doesn't sound like an ordinary regular just coming back to the land. David? Forever? Covenant of peace? Forever? God's actually going to be with them? In Ezekiel 36, it says that I'm going to put my spirit in you so that there'll be no problems with you obeying my law. It also says in Ezekiel 36, uh, Ezekiel 36, all the nations around you are going to say, oh my gosh, this land was cursed, but now it's like the Garden of Eden. The metaphorical resurrection of God's people coming back into the land, when it happens for real, the description of it is so grand, so extravagant, it is something not of this realm. And that implies a resurrection hope, an actual literal, it implies a literal resurrection hope. It implies it. But that implied resurrection hope is made explicit, isn't it, in Daniel? In Daniel chapter 7, Daniel chapter 12, it says, The Son of Man will be raised up and ushered into the throne room of God as a representative of God's people, and he will vindicate them. That's a real resurrection. And in, in Daniel chapter 12, it says explicitly, Everyone will be raised. Some unto judgment, some unto life. And understand this, this is the resurrection hope. This is the great hope of the Old Testament. That Jerusalem will be established forever. That's the resurrection hope. That God will rule over all creation from Jerusalem and the whole world will be blessed through it. That's what they're looking forward to. And so when it gets to Jesus, when it gets to Jesus, right, and, and, and his resurrection and his fulfilment of this resurrection hope, what we don't have in Jesus is a plan B because plan A didn't really work out. So the great hope of the Old Testament was, you know, there'd be this resurrection, literally, spiritually, of God's people, and, you know, Jerusalem would be established. Didn't work out, just petered out. Jesus comes along, blow it all. It's too broken. Uh, I, I will raise you with me to some ethereal realm where we play harps or something like that. It's an escape from creation. It can be seen like that. But, of course, that's not where Jesus' resurrection is placed, is it, in the Bible? Jesus' resurrection, bodily, new resurrection body, that resurrection is placed between Genesis and the hopes of Israel for this creation. It's placed between that and it's placed between that and, 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 and Revelation 21-22, right, which talks about 
a new Jerusalem coming down from heaven and a new heaven and a new earth and a restored and even more glorious Eden. Jesus' resurrection sits between those two bookends. His resurrection isn't a promise of an escape from this creation. It's a promise of an escape from a groaning creation, from a fallen creation, from a sin-filled creation. That's what the resurrection takes us out of, away from, unto a new creation. That's our resurrection hope, a new heaven and a new earth, a physical world to live in, a resurrection body that we already have a foretaste of in Jesus himself. You see, with Jesus' resurrection body, right? He, he's, he's the only one who has received his physical resurrection body. And what do we see? We see, right, continuity and discontinuity. It's different. It's glorious. The disciples take a minute, don't they, to recognize it as actually Jesus. It's different, but there's continuity. It is Jesus, and indeed he's still got the scars that are, the, that is, are his crowning glory. You know, he's the lamb on the... The throne, it's a, it's a reign of love. There's continuity, but there's discontinuity, and, and that is the same for us. He is the beginning of the new creation already come, and we will follow him. We can look forward to us, but more glorious. I mean, I can barely believe that, right? Me, more glorious? What? Who, how, what, where? <laughs> But this is just a pure speculation because I just don't really know what it means to have a glorified resurrection body. But what if, what if it is simply that it's me without any of the ravages of sin and a decayed and groaning and fallen creation? It could well be that. Me, as I am ideally meant to be in Christ as God's image bearers, not recognisable, just imagine me perfected in Christ, <laughs> perfect nutrition, exactly as I'm meant to be. I think I would be barely recognisable. Stu, is that you? <laughs> but it's exciting. It's a concrete hope. My mum said to me one time, she said, um, you know, she, my mum and dad went, to, went into ministry. Um, it's sort of around uh, the middle of their lives, and uh, they therefore gave up a lot of their kind of retirement savings and sort of kissed goodbye one of mum's great dreams, which was to travel lots in retirement. And she said initially that was a really bitter pill for her to swallow. It was very disappointing that they just wouldn't be able to do that in their retirement. And then she said to me one day, uh, pondering this, because you know what, she, she for most of her life was like me. Like, you know, when I talked about me at the beginning, my hope was just that I would escape judgment, more or less. Well, that's how mum thought about it as well. But then she, 
She herself had done some reading on the resurrection and, and, and the pity dropped for her that there's nothing to be disappointed about. She's not going to miss out. She's going to inherit the new heavens and the new earth. Knock yourself out exploring God's creation. You'll have eternity to do it and God will be pleased and delighted for you to do that. Remember what it looked like to worship God in the Garden of Eden? It's to bear his image and steward creation under him. Worshipping God is to enjoy, is to feel, rule, subdue God's creation. They're not separate and opposing ideas. What is it? So one option is the really holy one is we sit around and it's a never-ending Hillsong conference and we just worship and praise God. And for some of us that sounds really exciting and some of us not so much. And then some of us are really excited. Like, I, you know, I really want to surf in my retirement, but I'm sort of coming to a crisis point like my mum and realising that I'm never going to get there. I don't have the money or the time to put energy into it. I'm just not going to be surfing in retirement. But I really wish I could. But what about in the new creation? Will I get to surf in the new creation? I don't know, maybe. But it's not wrong to want that and to desire that and to hope for that because that is the creation that God has made us to live in and enjoy. To his glory and for our joy. It's not, they're not opposing ideas. It's exciting. And of course, definitely at the centre of it, we'll be worshipping God forever in purity. Here's one of the things I love about Keller's writing about our resurrection hope. He sort of he keeps on banging on about you know, our desires here in this world being ironed out or all the ways that they're corrupted and bent, they're being straightened out and fulfilled in the new creation. And it's the same for worship. You know that we all, we all worship something. We're created to worship. But the great thing about our resurrection hope is that our worship will be pure and God-centered. We will see the goodness of God in all its glory without anything blinding us for the first time ever. It's exciting. Our resurrection hope is, is not like, you know, um, you're at some meal and it's spoiled. I remember uh, one time, uh, this is our, one of the epic stories in our family, we had this massive Christmas dinner up at my cousin's farm. It was this huge event we'd always look forward to. We had an amazing spread. My nan was a fantastic cook. And then my goofy uncle, Uncle Graham, decided to, pop a bottle of champers and he pointed the cork like in jest at, at the light globe over the, over the meal. And he went, ha-ha, pop. <laughs> it was a fluorescent globe. Exploded. Covered everything. The whole meal. So you know what they do on farms? When a, when a, a sheepdog tastes blood, take it to the back, shoot it. That was the last time we saw Uncle Graham. <laughs> but no, the meal was spoiled, absolutely ruined. And so what do you do with that? What do you do with that? A ruined meal. 
Well, one thing you could do is just, and this is actually what we did, is just sweep it away, chuck it in the bin, you can't touch it, can't eat it. The best thing to do with that meal is to chuck it out for our safety. That's all we got. What God promises in the resurrection of Christ is another meal comes in its place, much bigger, much more glorious, much more grand than the one one that was there before. That's his response to the groaning creation that we hear about in Romans chapter 8. That is longing for the sons of God to be revealed that it might be released and brought into the glorious freedom of the sons that God loves. That's what we're looking forward to. Not simply an escape from judgment, a new creation that has already begun. Tim Keller says, our resurrection hope is not... Sorry, that's my quote. (laughs) Pretty good one. (laughs) Let's go back to Tim Keller. Uh, The resurrection means not merely that Christians have a hope for the future. This is really deep. I like this. The resurrection means not merely that Christians have a hope for the future, but that they have a hope that comes from the future. What it's saying is that in Jesus, we see the future now. We've seen it. Thomas touched the future. I can see it. I can taste it. He touched the resurrection body. If you want to build a ship, don't drum up the men and the women, the people to gather the wood, divide the work and give orders. Instead, teach them to yearn for the vast and endless sea. If you want to enthuse a Christian and enthuse me, help me to yearn for my resurrection hope. Help me to see it. Amen. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the mighty resurrection hope. And we thank you that in Jesus Christ, we can see it. We've seen his resurrection body, and we thank you that we will inherit a new heaven and a new earth, and that you will dwell with us. Please, God, in your mercy, help our hearts to grasp it and help us to grow in that hope, especially as we wrestle with it this week. In your son's name, amen. Thank you for listening to this Monash Christian Union Bible Talk. We long to see everyone at Monash University know a disciple-making disciple of Jesus Christ. If you have been blessed by this ministry and would love to support Monash Christian Union, you can do so via the link in the podcast description.